Boom! What's up, everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakyan. Very excited to be talking about fundamental well-being, talking about the finders. We have Dr. Jeffrey Martin joining us on the show. Hello. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great thanks to be here. Thanks for coming on. All right, Super absolutely. Excited. Thanks for coming down to the conference yeah. and doing all those videos. You were like working from nine to nine. I just kind of left you in your own space and didn't even want to go in that room for fear I was going to interrupt something. You were oh, amazing. The, the transformative technology ecosystem is one of the most powerful that we've had the chance to be a part of. So we're very grateful that we got to go down there and do interviews. That just happened in November. All of those interviews you guys can find on the channel, they're all labeled with trans tech. You can find the playlist. And, and it's just awesome. Also, after researching your background, realizing how much you are at the edge of understanding fundamental well-being. For those that don't know, Dr. Jeffrey Martin is a founder of the transformative technology space, a serial entrepreneur, and a California Institute of Integral Studies and Harvard educated social scientist who researches personal transformation and the states of greatest human well-being. He has authored slash co-authored slash edited more than two dozen books, most recently The Finders, which is the first multinational cross-traditional study on over 1,000 plus people reporting to experience higher levels of consciousness. I loved reading the book. We're gonna be talking about that in depth. You can find Jeffrey Martin's links below uh, and his Twitter and his Facebook link below. So go and check that out in the book link. Jeffrey, let's start things off on a big history perspective. We find ourselves as stewards of Earth. What is your current take on the state of humanity? That there's billions of them. <laughs> Right? I mean, there's so many different cultures. One of the things when you do a study like ours and you go all around the world, you go across all of these different cultures and subcultures and whatnot, is you realize just the massive amount of diversity that's out there. Presidential candidates always talk about this. You know, I used to have a lot, back in the day, I had a little political consulting company, and you deal with these presidential candidates who, for like the first time, were going across America. You know, and they were shaking hands in like every little community of every little state or whatever else. And they were like, oh my God, like there is no United States of America. It's just so diverse culturally. People are so different from one place to another. And then you take that to a global scale and it's really astonishing. And so I think of it more as regional than global. Mm. Uh, and so anyway, so I don't know. It's a good question. I actually... I really don't know. I think that's a difficult question to answer. You, I, well, I love how you took us to the 8 billion different human perspectives and their different cultures. Uh, <laughs> right? Yeah, because yeah, you're right that you can go from the middle of the United States and experience something completely different than you can on the metropolitan coasts, the melting pots out there, and furthermore, go to China, go to India, yeah. go to South Africa, go to Latin America. It's like a completely different everywhere. Think about the difference between like San Francisco, where we are, and Los Angeles, right? I mean... In San Francisco, you go into the richest neighborhoods and there are like the dumpiest beat up Priuses and stuff that people are driving, right? You go to Los Angeles and if your car is more than a year old and it's not spotless and how it's shining and you don't have a certain polish, I mean, it's just like it's inconceivable how different these two worlds are and they're seven hour drive apart from each other on 
the left coast or whatever, as people say, right? And so even just that level of diversity is kind of astonishing. Yeah, the diversity of social stratification as well, just a couple uh, miles away from that area in Los Angeles and that area in San Francisco that you're talking about, these richest areas. Again, totally. We have the... Um, the highest levels of, of homelessness. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. And all different, all different culture, right? Yes. Yes. And all the way to um, where humans are still using jerry can gallons and walking to wells to get water. Totally. Um, so yeah, versus a faucet. Um, so there is like, yeah, this is very different in terms of yeah perspective. It's important to get behind the eyes of as many um, perspectives as possible to have a comprehensive view on, on that's the world. what we did for so-called higher levels of consciousness you know we I really wanted to know what's the truth about these things at the core and unless you get that 30,000 foot view and then visit a bunch of places that you're flying over you know you really can't get it you've got to you've got to you know so many people insist oh no it's this or oh no it's that or oh no it's this other thing but it's like going to you know, the rich area, a rich area in San Francisco versus a poor area in San Francisco, they both have this reality. They consider totally the truth, yeah, right? Yeah. And then to LA, totally the truth in Hollywood Hills versus Santa Monica even, you know? So it's just, it's, a, it's one of those things where I think you have to get the diversity of perspective in order to get down to the real heart of the matter. And that's the only thing that we were really after in all of our research was what's at the heart of the matter? How do we pull out? what's at the absolute core of this experience. I don't want, you know, it was for me, right? I didn't want to be fooled um, because I was 12 years ago or so, you know, fairly successful, but kind of average in terms of happiness. You know, I wasn't depressed or, you know, I didn't have some sort of massive existential crisis going on or something like that, but it just seemed like I was working an awful lot and I'd done an awful lot of the stuff that people had told me that I should do. And yet, I seemed like there were people that were a lot happier than I was that weren't doing any of that. And it, you know, there was a puzzle there. Uh, I didn't want to keep doing the same thing for the rest of my life, right, and get the same mediocre result in terms of my moment-to-moment -moment well-being. So this whole thing, this whole study, all of it was just for me, and so I did not want to have the wool pulled over my eyes. I did not want to go out and just believe the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, tenth, twelfth population of people that were insisting, oh no, this is what truth, this is what it is. You know, I wanted to scoop in as much of that as I possibly could, strip all of the stuff that wasn't common off the top of it, and mm -hmm. say, what is the deeper reality here that you need to go after? Yes, yes, and this is great. You're, you go, you give us this perspective of, of going in behind the eyes of so many people that are experiencing these states of fundamental well-being, and then you're doing that. Meanwhile, retaining a thirty thousand foot perspective over what's happening, finding the commonality, writing about it in the finders. Let's totally. let's um, let's talk about your journey that led you to become who you are today. So. This was actually very interesting when I learned that it's been, it's been 11 years now as a director at the Center for the Studies of Non-Symbolic Consciousness, That's as well true. as a myriad of other things. And but longer than that for the study because we didn't start the center right away. You know, I didn't have an understanding of the political landscape of the academy when I was first starting out. And so I didn't know that it was a good idea to start a center or to start a sort of a core brand, if you will, within the academy that all the little things would lead back to. Um, and so really it started in 2006. 
and, and actually started even before that yeah. because um, the book, The God Formula, came during a previous period of research. And people will ask me about that research, and it's been so long now that I kind of have to watch my old YouTube videos and stuff to even sort of remember <laughs> yeah, what, our, what our findings were, you know? And they're not like that super interesting to me like they were back then, because I'm just in a different place, you know? Yeah. Um, but if you, if you think about that research effort, it was a very, I think, kind of commonsensical research effort, because what I basically did was say to myself, well, there's a ton of people trying all of these self-help products. So we ought to be able to go out and research those people and research those products and see if like some are better than others and whatever else. And I wound up learning that most of them went in the opposite direction of academic research, you know, later on. Um, so, you know, for instance, if you're in positive psychology, if you're journaling about your day, right? Well, if you write, just write a journaling book, generally you're, you're going to provide one of a few pieces of information, right? So just, you know, write down, you know, the things that bothered you and really sort of analyze them and the things that made you happy and really sort of analyze. So there's the analyze it sort of version of journaling, right? And then there's the relive it version of journaling, right? So just the story, you're reliving the story while you're writing that down. But it turns out that neither one of those are necessarily ideal. So if you're journaling about a negative event, best to analyze it. If you're journaling about a positive event and you analyze it, you'll probably make yourself less happy. Interesting. If you relive a positive event in your journaling, you'll make yourself more happy. Yeah, yeah. If you relive a negative event, <laughs> less happy, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, so yeah. There, these, there were nuances like that in the scientific literature that were just sort of missed oftentimes by the public authors, you know? And fortunately now we've had people like Sonia Libermirsky, Tao Ben-Shahar, you know, these sort of Richard Wiseman, uh, you know, hardcore sort of researchers in the academy that have published books. And, but their books are less popular than other people's books because they don't know, they're not out there promoting them all the time. And that's not what they're rewarded for. They're basically punished if you're in the academy. You're punished for writing a popular book because your department says, why aren't you writing more peer-reviewed papers? Mm -hmm. Right? That's what we're ranked on as a university, right? Every minute that you're not writing peer-reviewed papers, our ranking's going down. You know, our ranking could have been higher. And so you're, it's, it's this weird system sort of out there. So I w made a pass through all of that. And uh, the research in that was fantastic. And it really left off right at the door to fundamental well-being. It was like there was this, this whole batch of sort of a progression that somebody could make in that self-help literature if they did it right. And then there was just like this wall that it all ran into. And I was like, took me a year to figure out what that wall was. And that wall was just a completely different way of experiencing the world that today we would call fundamental well-being or academically persistent non-symbolic experience or anecdotally, you know, and enlightenment, non-symbolic uh, consciousness from our standpoint, you know, persistent mystical consciousness, unitive consciousness. There's hundreds and hundreds of terms for this stuff, you know. Could we, could we say that we are birthed into the playground earth and kind of into the social, political, economic machineries of the world and that the, the wall that you saw was this wall of, the, of, of being fundamentally okay with being alive and being able to, yeah, we'll get into some of these. Yeah, for sure. So then, so then now it's like, why? It's basically the wall of surrender, you know, that's like there's a, just before that from a modeling standpoint, when we were modeling all of that back in the day, there was a lot of release type stuff, very active in the mind, psychological release 
type of stuff, you know, EMDR and WHEE. Standing and, for. Um, these are, we don't have to get into too, sort of too deep into these, but like EMDR is sort of the um, standard today for getting around PTSD and it deals with, uh, it's, it's a little complicated, okay. so let's, we'll let okay. people Google that one. Okay. Um, but that was all, you know, release and um, I didn't draw a distinction at that time in my mind between release and surrender and one night I was having dinner at my hometown, Peoria, Illinois with my mom and I was telling her where I was at and I was telling her I was kind of frustrated with the research and I hit this limit and you know I'd been able to take people so far in terms of their well-being but then they just sort of plateaued and they kind of hit this wall and it would sort of even go back down mm -hmm. in well-being and it was like a huge setback from a research standpoint for me and she's like and she basically said it was so cute she was like well honey release is not the same thing as surrender mm. and it was just like boom you know? and then I found out that she experienced fundamental well-being and she thought everybody did she was christian she was yeah, very yeah. christian yeah. and when she asked jesus to come into her heart she had this profound transformation her yeah. mom had the profound transformation when she asked jesus to come into her heart yeah, yeah. Um, you know and so she just had this expectation that when she went to church everybody who had ever asked jesus to come into their heart you know if you think about it they're all praying the same prayer singing the same it sounds kind of like everybody experiences it mm -hmm. uh, she didn't realize that she was like one of the lucky you know 0.25 percent or something that had a profound sort of transformation that her mom was lucky too and so she thought when we when i was living in hong kong at age four or whatever and we were driving up the hill to go to our place um, when I said, Mommy, you know, I'd like to ask Jesus to come into my heart, she just assumed that, like, from age four on, I had the same thing she had, you know, and then everybody had this thing that was a Christian and whatever else. She didn't understand, you know, the academic research, we call it a successful conversion experience when you have something yeah, like yeah, what yeah, she had, yeah, right, yeah. which is a yeah. term from 100 plus years ago. Totally. Versus uh, just being able to have all that is be right there with you in your heart, and, and that, that's you know, your number is 0.25%, one out of 400 people. That seems like oh, crazy that that's, and so this, so the word surrender, so you're getting to the, the, the fundamental well-being plateau, let's say, or the wall, yeah. and then the word surrender gives you the continuation. Totally, just opened up this whole other way of thinking. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, oh my God, of course, that's it. We, we have, we have what would we do without our moms? <laughs> what do we do without the moms? Yeah, we love them so much. Yes, Ron, you have thoughts? Like a ton of bricks? Come on. <laughs> Can't you come up with anything more original? <laughs> Probably not. You know, how academics are. Okay, now, um, <clears throat> okay, so, so, um, I want to show some of the images that we have of you also being with um, here you're, you're actually you're, so you're doing two things you're not only are you logging what they're experiencing in a written and an oral right. way but you're also taking neural activity with EEGs and what are you finding when you're dealing with the states of fundamental well-being and the neural activity? That's a great question. 
And what we basically find is a, is a kind of a reorganization of the brain. You would think of it that way, right? So if you think about modern neuroscience, there's a lot of talk about networks in the brain, and you've got sort of these hub regions, and you know, when one place lights up, another place lights up, and together they form this network, and maybe there's a, another network that's quiet when this network is active. And, the dissolving know, of, of the default of mode network. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so what we're finding is like sort of new connections, you know, some connections sort of atrophying, other connections coming online, and you can find that with EEG work, and you can find that with fMRI work. I'm not an fMRI person, but we've collaborated with a bunch of fMRI people over the years, and the, for, these things are all very deep in the brain. These are very, very deep regions, what we call regions of interest in the brain. Um, and so that prevented a lot of progress, really, for many, many years, because if you don't have an fMRI machine that has real-time feedback capability where you can sort of take a picture of your brain and then circle a spot and then like put a bar on a screen and say, okay, make the bar go up, you know, when you finally figure out magically somehow how to make the bar go up, you increase or decrease activity, whatever the bar is set to do, you know, to provide feedback for you for. Um, if you think about that, that's like, you know, impossible for you to get access to, right? For the average person, like how are they really gonna get access to that type of equipment? Especially back then when we were starting around 2008, 2009, 2010, there weren't that many systems that were even set up for that. They were very, very rare. They were booked solid by researchers, you know, all of that. But even with EEG, you've gotta have a really a high density amount of electrodes, what we call, you know, basically a lot of electrodes on the head. Um, so as much as I love TransTech products like Muse, and I think Muse is amazing, and they push the window you know, forward and they've basically got a four electrode EEG system yeah. to do the kind of stuff we need, it's got to kind of look like what's on the screen right now. And this is 48? This is, that's a 64 channel. 64 channel. 64 is the minimum. Is the minimum you need? We consider that the minimum that we need, yeah. Um, and if we were just yeah. targeting one area, we could yeah, shorten totally. it down to maybe 30, you know, and just pick the right 30 that could triangulate one spot, but we don't need that. And so, you know, nobody's going to know, I mean, you can barely put this thing on your head yourself if you try, right? There are a few people at like the companies that make them that have gotten good over the years at putting these things on themselves just to test the units or whatever. But I mean, realistically, you got to have somebody put the thing on you, you know, you've got to have somebody running the software. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a thing. You need con um, conductive gel, you need to get the electrode near the actual uh, skin, uh, past the hair. Yeah, and these are, we use saline headsets, and so we use... Oh, you saline, yeah, uh, as because, a solution. You know, if you have a 64-channel headset with gel, research subjects don't come back, you know? <laughs> <laughs> They're like, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> so it's purely a matter of, you know, practical importance for us to have a saline-based headset system. But, you yeah. know, you could pop the headset off a picture like that uh, for a woman like that, and she could basically go back to work. You know, she could just poof her hair back up a little bit. And whereas if that was yeah. gel, I mean, yeah. she'd have to go home, shower, shower yeah. you know, be cursing your name the whole time. <laughs> all that, so. so, so what are um, some of the the realizations about the state of of, of fundamental well-being? There's this there's this voice that happens in our head, so yeah, teach us about this. Yeah, my, uh, my co, you know, my really my partner in the trans tech space, Nicole Bradford. We love Nicole, yes. Came up with the best way of saying that. She's very good at sort of plain spoken English stuff. Um, and she, one day she was like, you know that voice in your head that, you know, let me ask you, if I were to say, 
I can take that voice for you and I can transplant it into another person. And then I can make it so that you are stuck in an elevator for a long time with that person. Would you want that? Yeah, <laughs> of course, most people are like, God, no, right? Yeah, yeah. It's the last thing that I would want to experience because yeah. that voice is usually quite negative. You know, it's like, sure, have the dessert tonight. And then, oh, look at what a horrible person you are when you get on the scale the next day, you know? And it's like, it's, it's just so sort of schizophrenic and mean yeah. in most people's heads, right? And so the last thing they would want to do is be stuck, stuck with it. Ironically, like we are kind of stuck we in an elevator yeah. with this thing all the time, right? So she identified very early on, like, this is the thing to talk about. Like, this is the thing that everybody can sympathize with, you know? And if you say to them, listen, I can get rid of that voice or at least massively minimize its impact on you to the point where it's like the fan running in the background, you know, that we can sort of hear in the studio right now. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, unless, until I say the fan running in the background in the studio, you weren't listening to it, you know, yeah. nobody's, nobody's really yeah. hearing it. It's just ignored in the background. So, you know, imagine if the voice can sort of become that. I mean, talk about a massive difference in your quality of life. And so she's been very good over the years at sort of like picking out these things that, you know, are key things that somebody would go, how do I get that? <laughs> what, what, what do we see at a neural activity level when someone is, you know, just fundamentally okay with their voice? It depends. So there's different types of measurements that you can do. You can measure frequency things and you can measure blood flow things yeah. and stuff like that. One way to think about it, we can talk about, let's talk about blood flow because that's like generally talking about activation in the brain. It doesn't get into like crazy nitty gritty stuff around this frequency band versus that frequency mm -hmm. band and all of that kind of stuff. So if you think about just activation, you basically get a reduced activation in a main hub of what you mentioned earlier, which is the default mode network, for anybody that doesn't know what that is, um, it's basically the network that's active when you're sort of just sitting around doing nothing. And that's actually how it was discovered. Uh, there was somebody at, in St. Louis at a university who was like, hey, let's look at the, that the data that we've collected for people that are just laying there waiting for an experiment to begin, right? There's just all this data, nobody's ever really looked at it before, let's see what that data looks like. And it turns out that there was a sort of network and this alternating network between a task and default networks that came out of that. And so the task network, great name, really easy to see what the task network might be active during, right? Tasks. Tasks. <laughs> <laughs> Very well named. And Typ then typically some of the prefrontal activity for tasks for, yeah. Yeah, these are very different networks yeah. in the brain. And the task network doesn't relate too much to PNSE, but the, to our fundamental well-being. Yeah. PNSE is yeah. our academic term for this. Yeah. Uh, but the the, the default network really does, and the nodes on the default network, um, the two main ones really are, there's one in the, in sort of between the hemispheres of your brain in the front, what we would call the medial prefrontal cortex, and there's one in the back, um, sort of right back here, between the, again, buried sort of deep in there, called the posterior cingulate cortex. Um, and there's other changes, you know, there's changes that occur in an area of the brain called the insula and, you know, things like that too, the retrospolinal cortex, which is a little bit further in past the PCC. So there's, there's a bunch of different places that change and they, they change differentially based on the type of experience, the type of fundamental well-being someone's having, there's different types of this experience. It's very common for traditions to insist there's just this experience or whatever, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, which yeah, has yeah. gotten into, yeah. gotten traditions at war with each other and even people within traditions sort of at war with each other. Mm -hmm. um, but 
Anyway, so the main thing that happens is reductions in activity yeah. around some of these key nodes on the default network. And part of that is because the default network seems to relate among many, 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 many other things. Um, seems to relate to that narrative, individualized, traditional, egoic, whatever you want to call it, sense of self. Uh, and so you know, it probably makes sense that when that gets a little quieter, so does that version of the sense of self. So that's a, that's a big finding. But then the other big finding was really from a guy named Zoran Yusipovic at um, NYU. And he was, he was the first one to really find the rewiring that occurred. And so he was looking at non-dual Tibetan meditators. Um, and that was a huge, huge finding. You know, ordinarily, when the task network is up, the default network is down, and vice versa. And they mm -hmm. sort of go like this. And, and he was like, well, in these people, you know, when they're in this non-dual state, it's like a little closer together, and mm -hmm. that shouldn't really have been possible as people were thinking about these networks at the mm -hmm. time. And so it was really a revolutionary finding. And then you had people like Judd Brewer and, and Zorn and others who um, focused more on specific regions of the brain. Like Judd really loved the PCC. He was a strong advocate for the PCC is where it's at. Built a neurofeedback system involving the PCC with, I think he, I can't quite remember off the top of my head, I think he got it down to maybe 30 electrodes or something just to hit that one spot very precisely. It's deep in the brain, it's hard to get to. It's a lot of physics and math and stuff to really sort of get in there. Um, yeah. And so, you know, there's been lots of efforts like this over the years. It's going to get much easier to be able to map these uh, states of fundamental well-being once our um, our neurotechnology gets yeah, yeah. better. You imagine somebody like Mary Lou Jepsen's thing becoming real. I mean, you know, these technologies that seem to be real comers, it's going to be incredible. And this year we've been experimenting with uh, transcranial ultrasound, right, which is another really amazing technology. This is the first time that we've had a brain stimulation technology that can just sort of reach right in and just sort of tickle things like the PCC. We're, I'm, I'm tickling is not yeah. the right word. I mean, suppress activity, increase activity, you know, whatever. Uh, but just that spot and not affect a bunch of brain going in and out and all of that, but just be like, okay, you know, this little spot right here, boom, right? Uh, so that's been revolutionary for the last year or so. Okay, we need to talk about these locations now. Types. Yeah, these the types. Okay, the types. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Which um, we call locations. Okay, because there's uh, a continuum of possible uh, experiences mm -hmm. and uh, within this fundamental well-being. And it's everything from a state of being fundamentally okay, the silence and stillness of the mind, mm -hmm. a present moment focus, a disattachment from stories, to uh, being less reactive, being having a less narrative self, you're becoming less psychologically conditioned. Yeah, for sure. And or conditioned differently. Or being con yeah conditioned differently, conditioned towards that fundamental okayness. Right. Um, and and this is probably most uh, easily understood through what so many of the meditation practices teach of of being able to. Uh, have a period of, of cognition rather than immediate reaction mm -hmm. to some to a stimuli. That's sure. Occurring. Yeah, much less reactive. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you're 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 less with the conditioned psychology that you've had of immediately reacting to something versus taking a breath, sitting back, 
right, observing. Right. Exactly. And yeah. You know, if we walk through these, if you think about, so we call them locations on a continuum. If you think about a number line as kind of a continuum, uh, because it seems like we're we're talking about the same thing. It's all somewhere in the family of well-being experiences, right? And so then it's but there are clearly different types. There's clearly very different ways of experiencing this stuff. And so I didn't want to be in a situation where there was like you're in level three, yeah. but I'm only in level two, two. Yeah. right? Or, so I wanted to avoid that type of thing because I don't think that's legitimate. For, I mean, it might be legitimate in terms of the depth of fundamental well-being you're in, um, but you know, so what, right? I mean, being more relaxed is, let's just take it outside of fundamental well-being. Let's say there's a continuum of relaxation, right? Well, for some people, like let's say I'm retired, Right? And, you know, maybe I'm getting into my late 80s like my dad is or whatever, right? And it's okay for me to sit around in deep relaxation all day long, right? On the other hand, if I'm a firefighter and I'm still working, you know, is a state of deep relaxation what's most appropriate for my life in all moments and times, right? And so why should you say, well, gosh, I'm so sorry that you're only at a level two of relaxation. Yeah. That's, oh man, I could. There's level four, man. Yeah. You should get to level four. It's amazing the relaxation at level four, right? And you're like, well, yeah, but I'm gonna like burn to the yeah. ground fighting a fire if I'm in you know, level four of relaxation. It doesn't fit my life, right? And so that's really what we saw as we were looking at these different types is that it was just really clear that some were way more appropriate for certain lives and yes. certain lifestyles yes. and certain cultures even, yes, and, yes. you know, belief systems and whatever else than other ones were. And so I thought, okay, we cannot have this be some sort of reinforced hierarchy like has been done totally. for millennia. Totally. And then you start thinking to yourself, how do I, how do I get around that, <laughs> right? And so we called them buckets at first to just be very generic, but then people couldn't sort of visualize them as one thing. They visualized them as like these separate sort of buckets, you know, that were sitting out there. So eventually we came up with the idea, okay, it's all one continuum, it's all sort of one thing, mm -hmm. but they're just like a number line, they're sort of, and one number isn't, you know, number three isn't better than number two or number seven yes, or correct, whatever correct. else, unless you're maybe into numerology or something. But with the rare exception of something like that, right? So, But one that's heavily doing yeah. tasks and focused on tasks can find themselves potentially doing one of these deep dives into a um, into a state of fundamental well-being, if if possible, and that can actually make your tasks much more effective. It can, but it depends on the task, and it depends on the matching mm -hmm. of that task, right? And so, um, let's go through them real quick, and okay. then we can do some let's maybe do examples of that type of thing, right? So, if you think about location one, which is the furthest left on a number line, right, um, and sort of the starting point, if you will, of fundamental well-being. But having said that, you can start anywhere. Mm -hmm. So people do not start at just one. They're, you know, in our very first experiment where we were transitioning people to this, trying to get AB data, not just B data, you know, not just after the person was there data, which is what we got for a long time, um, but trying to really measure like, okay, what's the before and what's the after? for these people. So we, the first experiment that we did was six people, five of them finished. One of the people who finished landed in the fourth uh, category of this, the fourth location of this from nothing, right? I mean, they'd never meditated, they had no frame of reference necessarily wow. for any of this, and it was just like four, 
Uh, and so that's a great example. His name is Paul, and Paul's a great example of how anybody can sort of pop into any one of these as their starting point, and the starting point can be the finishing point. They can stay in that location forever, and that's totally fine, right? So no judgment around any of this, but just to say location one is the furthest left. It's the, you know, maybe the most simple of them all to, to talk about and describe. The thing about location one that you look for more than anything else, and it's gonna be true across the whole thing, is does someone have a fundamental sense that things are okay? So all of us, you know, we are raised culturally, I don't know if it's DNA, I don't know what it is, but for some reason the average human, regardless of seemingly where they are on the planet, has this fundamental sense of discontentment at their core, not a fundamental sense of contentment. Certainly that was true of me, you know, it's true of, it basically if you're not in fundamental well-being, it's true for you. Right. Trying to find some meaning in our lives. Can be, yeah, can express itself as a need for meaning and purpose. Think about the purpose movement and how like all you have to do is say, I'm doing a conference on purpose and like four trillion people show up these days, right? Because like everybody seems to be like searching for their meaning and their purpose or whatever, right? Could be that. Could also just be simple goal stuff. I was in the mid 90s and early 90s and stuff, I was doing a lot of advertising stuff. And so, you know, we just poked on that like there was no tomorrow, you know? It's like you, we, that, sort of God-sized hole that everybody has in them, whether they're looking at it or not, it's immensely useful from an, it's the entire basis of modern advertising and marketing and stuff, right? And so it's like, you know. Buy you know, to fill the hole. Yeah. yeah, buy to fill the hole, right? It's the, it's the next Chevrolet that's gonna finally fill that for you. The next beer. Yeah, whatever next it is, right? And that's what a lot of what our mind does, a lot of what sort of that narrative sense of self does, is it's constantly trying to convince you that, oh, okay, yeah, that relationship didn't work out. Wasn't that one, I was wrong on that one. And I was wrong on the 50 that came before it. But, but now I understand. I've learned from those 50. And who you're looking for next time is this, right? Or whatever else. And, but of course, yeah, I mean, maybe you have an amazing relationship, but it still doesn't fill that fundamental sense of sort of discontentment, right? And that, we should, and that fundamental sense of discontentment, you could argue, is evolutionary. It's like, you know, keeps you alive. You know, when, you're, when a bird lands and you're eating outside and you throw it a crumb, um, it doesn't just like peck at the crumb and then be like, oh man, this crumb is so good. And just like wait for something to swoop down and kill it. It's like peck at the crumb. Okay, what's wrong? Let's, let's see what's yeah. trying to try to kill me, right? Pick up the crumb, what's gonna to try to kill me, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, we're all animals. We've all sort of got that same yeah, sort yeah. of that's, survival that's what it's like. That's what it's like. It's really what it's like. Never Watch Never animals. Besides your house dog and cat that know they're safe all the time, um, if you watch animals in the wild, they're completely uh, just, Everything good? Okay, cool, okay, okay. Everything good? Okay, all right, mine might be, yeah, yeah. And ours is just shanghaied into modern life, right? And so when your boss says you're fired or you know your spouse comes home and says I'm divorcing you or whatever, it feels like the end of the world. It feels like the tiger ripping your arm off, right? Like these modern stories have hijacked those neural processes and stuff. So anyway, that changes with location one and you get this fundamental sense of discontentment replaced with a fundamental sense of contentment. And the benefit of that is that that's what's basically laying the foundation for your moment-to-moment -moment experience in the world. And you yeah. can imagine that's a night and day, day difference, difference, right? Yeah, yeah. It's so. like as you're commuting to work or as you're, you're, you're taking it in, you're taking in being alive as a human and, and being amongst other humans and in the privileged society that we have where water is so easily accessible, these types of thought processes and yeah. gratitude for your parents and for your life and all this, yeah. Why should I be afraid of something right now? 
you know? Yeah. I mean, what's going to burst through the door of the studio yeah. and just, you know, I, I guess elephant. we are live. Maybe yeah. I've offended some, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah. odds are we're yeah. living, I mean, you know, we're trying to lose weight, right? Not worried about starving before we make it to our next berry bush or catch our next fish or... You know, That's whatever right. it is. I mean, I walk right. outside this building and you're in like the epicenter, one of the epicenters of San Francisco, where I'm going to walk by an infinite amount of calories Ooh, in between here yeah. and my car, right? Correct, yes. Uh, yes. And so it's just, it doesn't make sense, right? So the other thing that's happened with location one is there's a drop off in terms of how long negative emotions last. You know, you might not, because, you know, oh, you're not, huge. you don't just have this positive negative emotion thing go away, right? I mean, you're not just like, oh, everything's okay. Look, it's just peace and contentment all the time. In location one, you still have this, you know. This is a very important point that, that you say that, yeah. It's that you still end up um, feeling negative uh, stimuli, but they don't dwell on for hours. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Three days later, you're not still thinking about the guy that cut you off in traffic and almost, you know, risked your kid's life that was in the passenger seat and, yeah. you know, pondering the photograph you took of their license plate and what you can do with it and, you know, all of these things that sort of are actually not that uncommon if you know anything about social science. So, yeah, when, you're, when your wife says to you or your husband says to you, I'm leaving you, you're not like, okay. You are leaving me. I understand. <laughs> I understand. I am completely er, er, neutral er, 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 in this moment. Er, there er. is nothing. Right? I mean, you're like, you feel the like, oh my, you, you might feel, think to yourself, oh, thank God that's over. Right? Or you might think to yourself, oh man, let's shoot. Right? Um, but if you, in that moment, look down deep, there is that fundamental, and it's an improbable sense of contentment. You're like, why in the world? Will I be feeling like things are okay? Somehow, strangely, bizarrely, at a deep level, things seem okay. Like, like that's my entire world is falling apart at this level up here, right? Why in the world would I have this experience that somehow, fundamentally, things are okay, right? I mean, it's a kind of a paradoxical. Could it thing be that some experiment. of the greatest treasures are on the other side of some of these deep, most deep adversities sure. that we face? Or that it just doesn't really, you know, most of the things that matter to you don't matter that much, you know, at the end. It's tough to, you know, we're programmed in to have them to think that they matter a lot more than they really do or, or whatever. And so there's a quieting of the yeah. narrative sense of self. Yes, there's yes. a reduction in self-referential thoughts in location one. But these are sort of the big things, right? Then location two, the main thing that you look for in location two is a perceptual shift um, that is popularly called non-duality, right? So if anybody Googles non-duality while they're listening to this, and certainly it's probably playing in a tab in the background or something at this point, right? Um, and so just, you know, <laughs> open another tab and search Google for non-duality if you'd like. Um, but basically, it's a, it's, it's a sense of oneness. It's one way that things can show up in a sense of oneness. So like I'm experiencing non-duality right now. It doesn't, and it's very paradoxical to try to describe to people, right? Because it really genuinely doesn't feel like there's a difference between me and you. I get that I'm experiencing my senses, not your senses, right? And yet, you don't seem different than, it just seems like there's just this one thing. The one thing. Um, yeah. And so it's, it's, it's very hard to explain to somebody that doesn't experience it because they think, that, well, then you should be feeling the other person's senses if you're really just showing, this thing is showing up as one thing or whatever else. So there's a lot of sort of paradox around it. And to me, you know, I'm a brain scientist. Uh, so I think to myself, well, I can see how you can rewire a few things in the brain. You get to the sense that it feels like this, and 
Um, well, if somebody is listening to this in another tab right now, or, <laughs> or possibly even watching it, whoa. whoa. Um, the single taskers. <laughs> the single taskers, God, we love you. Love you. <laughs> um, you know, something that they can do to, to ask themselves, well, how do I know if I experience this, don't experience this? It's actually quite simple. Just ask yourself, as you're looking right now, how is that experience of looking? And I don't mean that in a sort of metaphorical way or woo-woo way. I'm just like, literally, as concretely as you can think of those words, what is it like to look right now? Mm -hmm. And so if, you, if it feels like there's something like in and around here that's like looking, like I'm sitting yeah. here looking at you, it's like I'm here and there's a clear looking and there's something in here that's seeing you and you're out there and I'm here. Not so much in the non-dual yeah, sort of right. space, right? But right. if you're, if I open my eyes and it's just sort of all here all and it here. doesn't feel like there's this looker, yeah. um, then there's a chance that you might be experiencing that. Same thing with hearing. Is there a listener or is it all just like, oh, it's all just sort of showing up and it seems yeah. like it's just one thing and whatever. And many people experience this. Many more people experience this than know they experience it. But culture doesn't sit around talking about these types of perceptual changes, or these types of perceptual experiences. So people just don't realize. Another the way of potentially perceiving this would be all the way full circle back to what we started talking about when we said eight billion perspectives. It's like yeah. when you're here in this room with Ron and Jeffrey, am I, am I also you at the same time? Am I in the room at the same time? Can I take my consciousness above San Francisco? Can I start feeling San Francisco all at the same time? Can I start feeling the earth all at the same time? Mm -hmm. And so this is a, a non-dual uh, approach to perception and to and to experience the qualia. Yeah, it does seem not so much in location too, and later locations especially that are non-dual. Um, it does feel like there's some sort of like okay, and it, it kind of makes sense, right? If you are, if we really are just part of this one thing, and really, how could we not be? Um, so, if we are really just part of this one thing, why shouldn't I be able to sense beyond just my immediate physiological senses, right? Um, so location two, further reduction in self-referential thoughts, you know, um, by the, you know, by the time you're really deep in it, it's mostly a positive emotional experience, still have emotions, still have a sense of agency, still feel like you can do things, still feel like you're making choices, all of that. Location three, the big hallmark is a big shift in emotion to a sense, it, location three is sort of the end of the classic Abrahamic mystical traditions. It's, mm -hmm. you know, where Sufis try to get, mystical Christians try to get. There's, there's also reflections of this in Buddhism and Hinduism and stuff, but most people in America that listen to an English podcast have a Christian background. Uh, and so I think it's helpful to say, well, this is sort of what the Christian mystics try to get to us, location three. And it really, it's dual again, actually. It's very mm. subtly dual again, because you have this, sense that you're in merger or union with something else. It's yes. the divine if it's Christianity yes, or yes. if it's religious. Interesting. So the duel comes back so that there is a communion with this Yeah, duel. I mean, how yeah, could I okay. feel like I'm increasingly merging into something if it's all one? If it's right? all I mean, one. Why would I ever have that experience, right? Yeah. So there's some sort of coming out of that non-dual experience interesting. and then going back into it in location four. Um, and then there's that one core emotion that you experience in location three, which feels like a, like impersonal or divine yeah. love, compassion, joy, and it can, it can have more than facets than that. Um, sort of a, but it's like, it's, it's the dominant thing. It's the dominant emotion that's with you. If, you're, if your parents die or something, I mean, you're gonna feel a little something come up in that, right? It's yeah. not necessarily a totally 24 seven, always on, nonstop, end of the world comes, kind of, you know, you're starving kind of thing, um, but, for the most part, for the average person's life, it's 
a consistent ongoing experience barring major catastrophes you know that happen to them um, and usually one of those facets is more front and center at any given time so I might be feeling more love or more joy or more compassion or more whatever the other ones are that were culturally programmed into me um, along those lines um, some people experience the divine, some people experience it more from a panpsychist sense, which is a, a philosophical term that basically means like everything is conscious or everything feels like it's consciousness or whatever else. And so some people have the merging into that, some people have the merging into the divine. I don't, I've never felt, as far as I know, anything that feels divine. So I have like the panpsychist mm. version of that when I'm in location three. Um, further reduction in self-referential thoughts. Or the, and the saliency of self-referential thoughts and these all two of that. things, divine and panpsychism, almost come together a little bit into the all that is uh, that kind of yeah yeah and they're both yeah. they're both impersonal right that's the key thing about it it's not a personal, personal love it's not a personal joy that's it's not a yeah, you know they both yeah, they're both yeah. basically an impersonal sense of these things yeah and we can also kind of feel that um, probably most commonly when you're uh, <coughs> like in the in the cuddles of your partner when you're when you're just and it just feels ethereal that it's just so profoundly love and compassion and bliss that you're just laying there next to each other in the quiet together um although that can also yeah. be for ordinary people the height of the personal version of that yeah that's in, in, not yeah. the dispersonal version that's right of that. depends yeah. on where you're at on the continuum <laughs> that's right this is a very yeah. very important nuance yeah yeah. And then location four feels like you've just sort of fallen off a cliff into an alien world. Um, Teach us about this. So the sense of agency goes away. You often, you know, you feel like you can't take a decision. You, you know, there's no, you're, there is no decision maker. There is no action. that. And it's paradoxical, right? Because you're sitting there interviewing someone and they're clearly like, I'll have the lemongrass chicken. Right? And you're like, aha, that's a decision. And they're yeah. like, there was no decision that was made there. You know, it just, yeah, it just feels like it's just the yeah. synchronistic unfolding. Yeah. Action is happening. Decisions seem to be being made. But internally, in, in one's experience of this, these things are just unfolding. It's like just sort of the universe continuing to unfold. You're sort of watching it. Uh, it's fascinating. You know, it's a fascinating interior experience. Um, no sense of emotion, even love, it goes at that point. And that's what partially brings the alien no, alien feeling to it. But I often say location three, if you look at the mystical literature, uh, the mystics and stuff, well, we haven't read a lot of the mystical literature, so I only know what they tell me. I s only sit down with real people. We only research real people. I don't want to know. I don't want to have to guess what somebody meant by some sentence in a book. I want to be able to ask you for however many hours I need to ask you until I'm sure I understand the sentence that just came out of your mouth, right? Uh, but needless to say, lots of people have used lots of references over the years that resonated with them from different traditions that we interviewed people in and their books and their scriptures and all that. Um, so one of the things that's interesting about Location 4 from that, from that sort of no emotional standpoint is that it goes along with this sense of a complete absence of needing approval from other people. Like, so the, the word you look for in Location 4 out of people's mouths is freedom. It's like everybody has the same word. Whoa. in Location 4. It's like, you know, Location 3 is awesome. It's probably the peak of cr classical human experience, right? Yeah. And then Location 4 feels like you've fallen off into this alien landscape. Wow. But you are more free, free. And on a scale that was unimaginable <laughs> at any previous Interesting. location. Yeah, this, is, you know? this is just very fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This yeah. Location, these locations. 
Yeah, the book's fantastic, The Finders. Um, okay, so this this is actually this is idea. this is so so cool. So, all right, let's let's take a let's take an example of something like a like a free will that mm-hmm. is under conversation by mm-hmm. philosophers, so frequently neuroscientists mm-hmm. even. Um, so then, in in a location four, there is uh, no. Yeah, there's the notion of free will is ludicrous. You know, if you're arguing with somebody in location four about free will, they're just going to think you're an infant, really, that just doesn't understand the way things really, really are. Now, interesting, past location four, you know, there are more locations beyond that. It just keeps getting fewer and fewer and fewer people, obviously, who experience these the further you go. Um, But then there's kind of a fork in the road, and some people that go past location four kind of return to a more of a humanish experience where some forms of love, obviously completely impersonal forms and stuff, you know, come back in. Um, And in those instances, you can have sort of a difference in free will. There can be some beliefs that come back in around free will or some, some experiences of doubt around, well, maybe there really is some sort of free will here. Um, and then on the other side, it looks just like location four to the increasing max, right? Um, and like those, you know, the, I call that the path of freedom, the other one, the path of humanity. Mm-hmm. If you're on the path of freedom, like you're never going to argue with pro-free will. <laughs> Okay, like free will is in the past, you know, in terms of your experience of moment-to-moment existence. Not from a philosophical standpoint, you know, these are not philosophical debates to people. These are how their lived experience is showing up for them yes, yes, that they're talking yes, about. Yes. And I think it's important for people to realize that if they read these people's books and stuff like that, um, and they're interested in watching their videos and all of that, oftentimes people will say things like, you know, I w- it was like waking up from a dream, or they'll have, they'll have these phrases. Mm. And, and when I was first sitting down with them, I was thinking the way other people I've noticed over the years think about this. And I was thinking, oh, these are like metaphors. They're like trying to give me a metaphor that, you know, it's, but it's, they're really not. Most people are trying to give you as close an analogy in your actual lived experience as they are experiencing in their lived experience. Yeah. And so it's, you, know, you can't think of it as a metaphorical type attempt at communication. You have to think of it as a literal type of communication. They're really trying to get you to as literal a realization, as close as they think you probably have experienced in your life to what it is that they've actually experienced. That's a, that's a mistake I think a lot of people make in terms of interpreting these types of people's you know, statements because they're not into stories. They're not into metaphor. Some of them train themselves to be good at it again so that they can build some large audience or because they're in some venerated position in some spiritual tradition and they're just stuck with thousands or millions or tens of millions of adherents or whatever, right? And so they've just got to sort of go back into it in the same way that a programmer has to go back to work after one of these experiences even though they might not want to be thinking in algorithms right away or, you know, whatever else, right? Um, so anyway, it's, yeah, all this. Okay, and then is the the location five this deep disassembly and reassembly yeah five six uh, pretty much five up you know you it's you've dug so deep into the architecture of the i think of it you know again it's the neuroscientist bias and perspective for me right i think of it as you've dug so deep into your wiring so deep into your connections and you've gotten rid of so much 
of your connections that, that constructed sort of what most people think of as the normal sense of self, yes. the societally accepted condition sort of, you know, so you can be like everybody else and fit in kind of sense of self. You've deconstructed so much of that that you've been constructing probably since age two and a half or something on. Yeah. Um, but eventually you get down to the point, you know, what comes before two, right? I mean, when you're out of the womb or when you're in the womb, or I mean, it's just like your brain just learning how your senses work, how they go together, how, you, yes, you know, yes, yes, yes. how wake sleep works. Yeah. I mean, there's like some early stuff that is kind of learned as part of the developmental process by the brain, by the nervous system, whatever else. And eventually you kind of are reaching back into those really super early days and it can get dangerous. You know, it can get very dangerous. You can get some glitches that uh, I don't, I haven't traditionally talked much about location five, six, seven, eight, nine, so on, because, uh, you know, I think they're, they can be dangerous to, to go for outside yes. of a support system that knows how to deal yes. with it. The deep surgical operation into the <laughs> first two years of life. Um, into or the, the womb, or who into knows the what, womb, right? Yeah, yeah. Into, the, into the deepest, yeah, circuitries, and being able to um, to come out uh, in a, in a reassembled form that is uh, um, that transcends uh, experience, and it's like kind of crazy. To, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's uh, it's unbelievable, like the restructuring that ha that can occur at those deeper. Levels. And then you actually literally can feel yourself be less psychologically conditioned to those roots that For you sure. went and, and did a surgical operation on. Yeah, absolutely. And then that's when you really realize the power that you also have in changing your own life and your own felt experience if you're willing to explore. And how many different experiences there are of the world all through this as well. You know, I mean, when you start getting into that five through nine range, you start having a lot more reports of psi, especially on the path of freedom, less so on the path of humanity. Psi. Psi, you know, psychic activity, oh, and, you know, psychic people activity. like psychic premonitions, really accurate intuitions, uh, okay. all of sort of those sorts of things, right? You get past location nine and you start having reports of, you know, mind-matter interaction type stuff from people and whatnot. And I have to be careful of all that because I am not a magician. You know, that I haven't made like some careful study of all of that. But I can collect reports and you can, you know, you can respect someone's sense that the, and, and especially a highly functional person's sense, you know? I, f I feel like we must then talk to you about this. Um, once you get so far on these, you know, on this continuum of locations, does it then uh, feel as though we come from somewhere that is not this 3D reality into the playground that is Earth? It's difficult to think of how to define that type of thing, right? Like by location nine, the thing that I look for around location, and you hear it earlier, but you hear it in a less complete form. Um, but at location nine, there's just like the solid sense from people, and they just, they like the phrase, it's just the universe looking out my eyes. Right. Uh, so there's been so much deconditioning of that individualized sense of self and so much deconstruction of that individualized sense of self that the way that they feel that they can best express it doesn't matter the culture you're in, you know, doesn't matter the degree of sophistication or education of the person. Like you basically hear the same phrase out of people in location nine. And it's, you know, it just feels like the universe looking at my eyes. And you might hear that at location eight, you might hear that at location seven, but it's slightly different 
you know, when you dig into it, it's colored a little bit. There'll be a rider on it. There'll be a, you know, it just feels like it's the universe looking out my eyes and, <laughs> or, but, or, you know, there'll be some sort of context provided around that statement. That context is just gone, right, by location nine. So is that, you know, is that still part of the, the physical game or sort of the, you know, is the universe just sort of, you know, are you still in the game that you were talking about in your question a minute mm -hmm. ago? Or uh, by that point, is that what they're referring to, not what they're referring to? You know, I think it's probably impossible to know unless you're actually experiencing that. And then, you know, if you think about people that are, that are reporting really routine abilities to sort of mess with, um, you know, mind-matter interaction type stuff, manifest things and, you know, stuff like that, um, which of course is not limited to this population of people. There's all kinds of people who aren't in these, you know, further locations and stuff that claim to be able to do the same types of things um, and that have been researched and seem in some cases to be able to do them at least. The, it's, you know, is that, I don't know, I guess I question if, if this is all philosophical speculation and these types of questions, of course, right? Because how could we ever know if we're outside of whatever this thing is, right? Probably you can never get outside of whatever this thing is. You can probably get to different it. layers of it, levels of it. I yeah, mean, it's probably right. like playing a video game at, at its extreme, right? You're maybe never outside the video game, but by the time you make it to level 390, level one seemed something so simple and primitive and you know, concrete and you know, whatever else. But that doesn't mean that you've escaped the video game. Totally. Or whatever else, yeah. right? still baked into it and then but you how do we ever know you know you potentially not, you potentially know um by uh by recreating and then observing potentially um and then making yeah making more um embeds p potentially this but maybe you're just playing with lower levels in the game playing, playing yeah. with lower instead of being able to poke yeah. scientifically at the higher um yeah it's it's um the ultimate, yeah, remembering, and it's it's a bunch of. Let's let's speak on um, on zooming in and out. Um, I think this is this is very profound. The when when you're when you're finding yourself just relaxing or eyes closed or at the park or wherever you are, maybe, and then all of a sudden someone says your name. There's kind of a trigger in a sense of you to zoom in on. A conversation mm -hmm. so versus what you were doing before was maybe a feeling of being like zoomed out so mm -hmm. can you yeah, speak on this a bit yeah I think us? that's a good way of, of thinking about it from how a normal person might conceptualize it if you think of that as being another continuum if there's like a zoomed in left side and a zoomed out right side or you could flip them doesn't matter um, what we're really talking about with fundamental well-being is increasing access to further zoomed out um, yeah. locations on that continuum. And then what that provides you in the zoomed in experience in terms of perspective or in terms of, so Les Lancaster, who's a researcher in the UK, uh, I just saw speaking at a conference actually the other day, um, he had this great, he, he noticed these things that he, I think he called them eye tags and this were in like the 80s or early 90s or something where he wrote a paper about this. And what he was noticing is that in sort of people that were in, in finders essentially, um, 
that there were like these little senses of self, you know, maybe hundreds of them in someone. And that, and, and they're not just in finders, but they're really sort of, he believed that they're sort of in everyone, and they may very well be in everyone. Um, and so, you know, when, when I come up and I say your name and you're sitting on that park bench, which one of those are you going to zoom into, right? Yeah, if you yeah. open your eyes and it's the President of the United States in a Secret Service detail, it's maybe this one, right? If it's your girlfriend, maybe this one. That's right. If it's your, you know, if it's me, maybe this one, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, Interesting. One of those may cause you to run, <laughs> another yeah, engage. Yeah. You know, you another. It's some more of your attention. Another be like, else, yeah. honey, I'm relaxing here. Don't bother me, right? Which you probably wouldn't say to the president. Right? I'd probably be the one you ran from. Uh, but you know, whichever one it turned out to be, right? And so what, what, they, what he sort of identified was that there are actually, there's not this, con, this composite construct of the self. There's all kinds of selves. Yeah, and yeah. there seems to be a smoothing function in our moment-to-moment -moment experience that denies us access to that knowledge, where it just feels mm -hmm. like there's this one sort of self. And there's, you know, I'm like this when I'm with you, and I'm like this other thing when I'm with this other person, and I'm like this, and, I'm, and then there was the five-year-old me, and somehow, if you think about it, it's sort of, if you just think about it for a second, it's kind of insane that we view this as one composite construct, that the five-year-old Jeffrey, right, presumably Jeffy at that point, um, is like the same, so somehow be just magically smeared in my brain to be co-equal, and the same as the version of Jeffrey that's sitting here with you in this interview versus the version that's going to be back at the lab in an hour or something. Mm -hmm. Or that was, you know, a friend of mine caught me on the street. You happen to be near an art exhibit that's going on with mm -hmm. transformative technology and stuff. And he spotted me from behind. He was walking back from lunch or something or dinner and was like, Jeffrey, you know, I was three minutes early and then. 17 minutes late for this interview <laughs> because he's like you have to see what we're up to with AR and you know all of this other stuff right? and it was amazing the version that I am with him very different than the version that I am with you right and so Les called these I tags which I think uh, was an interesting conceptualization of his and we found that with people that experience fundamental well-being because there's something about sort of the deconstruction of that sense of self and also something about the degree of being able to zoom out and get a new level of perspective where now, you know, when you zoom in in fundamental well-being to whatever degree you zoom into, um, there's a lot more awareness about the version of you that you're zooming into. Um, you can choose to zoom in lots of times to different degrees of depth um, that becomes automatic in some ways over time. There's like a new you know, where, you, where the average person on the park bench, you open your eyes, you know, there's a, that's all automatic, right? You're not thinking to yourself, okay, time to focus on the president now. Hello, Mr. Yeah. President, yeah. I'm increasingly focusing. You know, it's just automatic, right? You open your eyes, oh crap, it's the president. You know, I hope you didn't see my tweets or whatever you're, or, or man, I like that person or, you know, whatever the thought is that goes through the average person's head, right? But from a fundamental well-being standpoint, um, you know, you can, you sort of notice the role that you're adopting. You're more aware of it. You can, yeah. it's, yeah. there's an automaticity that develops in that over time. Um, there's a lack of self-referential thought, of course, in fundamental well-being. And that means a, a lack of self-reflection, which means, you know, you, you feel like you're fine as you are, right? So you don't, why, why? I don't need self-help classes. Why would mm -hmm. I need a self-help class? I'm, I'm whole, I'm fine, mm -hmm. I don't need to add anything to myself, I don't need to change anything about myself, right? Mm -hmm. That could not be true, I could be a complete jerk um, to you, you know, coming across to you. For me, I, I'm like, I'm, I'm perfectly fine. 
you know, you'll leave the interview and be like, God, that guy was nuts, you know? Um, but I won't sense that necessarily without some sort of external feedback loop that, you know, maybe by the time my 900th girlfriend leaves me in a month or whatever, maybe, okay, maybe something's off. Maybe it's not them, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But so without that self-referential loop, there isn't necessarily a, a desire to act on these I tags, we'll just call them I tags. I didn't use that term in the book, but we'll just use Les's term. Um, and change them. Some people in earlier locations do have that degree of awareness. They do have enough self-referential thought remaining that they're like, wow, this is really useful. I can tweak this one this way and this one this other way. And oh, look, they're all kind of interconnected. And when I change this one a little bit, it ripples through changes these other ones that are sort of like that one. And boy, this is a really effective you yeah. self-improvement program. Right? By location four, you're like, <laughs> you know. We could call this developing out the awareness. Mm -hmm. Developing out awareness. Yeah, it's a new, yeah, exactly. It's a new automaticity, a new development. Yes. From that standpoint, exactly, yeah. Okay. Wow. I feel, I feel like, you know, we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't mention this um, right before we ask your, the couple quick questions on the way out. You have an email. It's support at findercourse.com. Mm -hmm. And if, if anyone is interested in conversing um, with uh, Jeffrey and the team of the ones that are putting together this material on the finders, uh, please reach out. Again, that's support at finderscourse.com. Yeah, we were talking before the interview and we were, and I was saying it would be interesting to see like how many people listen to this podcast that are like, wow, they're describing me. Yeah. You know, so that's why we want to give out that address. Like that's if right. you're like, if you think you're, if we just are curious to know, like how many people are out there listening to this that are like, oh, that sounds really close to a description of some way, you know, maybe it's location two or four yes. or whatever it is. Yes. But. And this would be a very good way to potentially put piece together uh, communities of people that feel this way and then, um, then you don't yeah. feel so alone. Oh, um, I think that's, that's very a crucial isolated. You don't feel lonely, right? But you feel more isolated in the world. Yeah, that's yeah. the key differential there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And they, those types of people can also go to explorerscourse.com. Um, we have a two-hour free video thing that basically gives them the most important things to know if you're in this state of consciousness. Explorescourse.com. Yeah, you just go. It's free. You just register. Two, two hours of, of key information. It's a bunch of little videos, but it adds up to about two hours. Okay. And it's the things that we felt, if you're a finder, these are the things that you should know that you probably can't figure out unless you've talked with thousands of finders and done research on thousands of finders. Yeah. You know, what are the cycles that unfold? in your life, for instance, how do you, you know, as a finder, for instance, you privilege peace, right? Yeah. I mean, effectively, in every moment, yeah. it's like, that's right. It's like, you know, I peace have, is the most important, peace is the most important yeah, thing. Th yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think until you say that to some finders, they haven't necessarily put that together. Um, and it's just helpful for a finder to yeah. hear that and go, wow, that's, yeah. yeah. That is my main operating MO, right? Yeah. And so there are just things like that that I think it's helpful to hear from an external perspective, cycles that we've learned about that you just can't see unless you're researching a large population. It's yes, helpful yes. to know about, stuff like that. So we packed all that stuff into the couple Great. hours. Great, Finder's Course. Explorer's Course. Explorer's Course. Finder's Course is the experiment where we transition people to to be finders and explorers courses, the content that oh, we cool. put up for people. Okay, that so are finders course finders. for transitioning to be finders, explorers courses for those that are finders that are um, coming in. So those links are in the bio, everyone. Jeffrey, I feel, I feel really 
uh, powerful and strong right now um, and enlightened and I really appreciate you coming on the show and teaching us about the finders and yeah I feel really good and I hope others do too um, after watching the content or listening to the content a couple quick questions that we like to ask our guests on the way out uh, the first question is are we alone in the cosmos well it depends on the level of consciousness you want me to answer that from <laughs> if it's all one thing Technically, I'm alone, <laughs> right? Um, and so then it sort of goes downhill from there into at what level do we really want to skin that at, right? On the physical level, you're probably out there, right? There's probably, you know, even though I experience this as just one thing, nonetheless, I seem to be here, you seem to be there, right? He seems to be over there. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, then there's a myriad of things that can be discussed basically between those two bookends, right? Yeah, yeah. Or do you think we're in a simulation? I don't know, simulation, video game. I think there's, I think it's easy for us to feel that way. Um, but one of the hitches that we, I think, have to keep in mind as humans is that we're interpreting things at any given time through our latest idea of a framework, right? And so, like, the, until recently, the brain was a computer because computers were the most advanced computational thing, right? And so all neuroscientists sort of were viewing the brain and writing papers about the brain and designing our models of the brain and whatever with the brain as a computer. And, you know, now we wouldn't really say the brain is a computer. Like we've evolved sort of beyond that. Now you have like quantum consciousness things going in with some brain scientists and you know other, but it's, we're all sort of, we're sort of stuck in the limit of metaphor, right? And so, you know, can you adopt a belief system that says you're in a simulation or you're in a video game or whatever else? Yes, but on the other hand, if you're 100 years from now and there's something way better than a video game that seems to, you'll probably say you're in that. I saw this one thing one time. I've never been able to find it again. Um, but there was one of these UFO societies um, put out some newsletter or something. And it was sitting on a friend of mine's coffee table 25, 30 years ago. Another friend, of, another engineer from NBC back when I was working in, in television. And um, I, I was waiting for him. He was like having some problems with kids or something. And I was just sitting around waiting for him. And I was some looking for something to read because my mind was really active back then. Had to be f constantly fed, right? And so here's this UFO thing. Okay, I'm flipping through the UFO thing. It had this story about that basically tracked people's views of UFOs over time. And there were like woodcuts from like, I don't know, 17th century newspapers or I don't, what, I don't know, something like that, right? I'm not a great historian in terms of the printing press or anything, where it was like people would see like tall ships in the sky, right? And then it was, it was almost like this guy had sort of documented culturally how like, you know, when, when flying saucers came in, then it's like flying saucers, and you know, it's like, I think we all have to sort of keep in mind how our brains are shaped by these types of notions, you know? Yeah. So yeah, does it feel to me in this moment like it's some sort, I mean, reality does not feel that real. Rea reality does not feel like it's concrete, like people, like I felt it was before fundamental well-being, Yeah. right? For sure. But I also have to say, we're probably going to come up with something much better than the notion of a simulation in 50 years or 25 years sure. or 100 years. And sure. so, so who knows what we'll say sure, it sure. is, you know? Sure. 
And then the last question is, what is the most beautiful thing in the world? Hmm. I don't think it has, I don't, I don't think there's a way to answer that because I'm not sure that you can express it in, in language. It's everything, right? It's sort of the composite of everything, right? Like your microphone clip is the most beautiful thing in the world, if that's what I'm focusing on. Or, um, and so it's, it's, you know, I don't know. It's, uh, if, it's, if I'm sitting alone in silence, it's, silence can be the most beautiful mm -hmm. thing in the world. If I'm looking in your eyes right now, they can mm -hmm. be the most beautiful thing in the world, right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that there's a differentiation there. It's sort of like whatever my attention is on yeah, at yeah. any given yeah. time yeah. is the most, maybe that's the answer. Yeah, that's a good, good answer, yeah, yeah. I like that one a lot. Wherever the attention is being focused at that moment, it's the most beautiful thing in the world. Yeah. Jeffrey, wow. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Sorry I missed you at the conference. <laughs> well, look at how much uh, more, you know, being Yeah, this have, was yeah, yeah, probably a lot more. And I've had time. more time to build out my um, structures of perception and uh, reasoning. So, um, yeah. and you've, uh, and the finders came out. So this yeah, is good timing. Yeah, the finders came out. So it yeah. is good timing. It is great timing. Around. Everyone, uh, check out the finders. The link's below for that. Check out Jeffrey's website also. Um, remember, if you if these experiences felt something like uh, something that you experience, what we've been describing, email support at finderscourse.com. Huge shout out to Ron Vogus. Thank you very much for producing and directing. Yeah, thank you, Ron. We love you very much. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Give us your thoughts in the comments below. We would love to hear from you. Uh, we would also love for you to share these types of conversations with more people. Go and talk to your family and your friends and your communities online about these conversations that we were having today with Jeffrey and also support the artists and entrepreneurs and organizations that you believe in around the world to help people with their actualization. Simulations links are below. Help support us, help us grow and go and build the future everyone. Manifest your dreams into the world. We love you so much. Thank you for tuning in and we will see you soon. Peace.